Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, why allowing for plasma donors to be compensated is so crucial in ensuring that we have enough plasma product. The fight for retail freedom in Manitoba, why one Winnipeg grocer is paying the price for opening his doors on holidays. Also, just two weeks after being released into the wild, a rehabilitated orphan bear cub was shot dead. How did this happen? Plus, we take a look inside the fascinating world of competitive eating. Well, there's no doubt that Alberta's new premier intends on undoing a lot of what Alberta's previous premier did. But does that include undoing Bill 3? The Voluntary Blood Donations Act is what it was called at the time. The NDP brought in a ban on compensating plasma donors. And it, it followed what other provinces had done, too. That there's been kind of an ideological push in Canada to ban compensation for plasma donors. Now, it, it should be noted, we're not talking about blood donations. We're talking about plasma donations. Canada is heavily reliant on the U.S. for plasma. In fact, about 80% of plasma products are imported to Canada from the United States. And of course, the reality is in the United States that plasma donation is, is allowed. So it is hypocritical, I suppose you could say at one level, if on some moral principle we think it's wrong to allow for compensation, we're going to ban it and then become even more reliant on a system that allows it. Health Canada, though, has found that, that payment for plasma donations has never, never will have any impact on Canada's voluntary system for collecting blood for transfusion. So it's not a threat to our blood supply or to blood donations for that matter. So joining us to talk more about why this is such an important issue and whether Alberta's new government might take a different view on this. Very pleased to welcome to the program Peter Jaworski. He's an assistant uh, teaching professor of ethics at Georgetown University, also co-founder of DonationEthics.com. has a great piece in today's Globe and Mail on this very issue. Peter, great to talk to you again here. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Rob. Appreciate it very much. All right. Well, let's talk about why this issue is important, first of all. How important it is that we have uh, plasma available for these, these, in many cases, life-saving treatments, and why it's important, then, that we continue to encourage donations. Uh, like you said, these are life-saving medicines. The ones that we're talking about include immune globulin, albumin, uh, clotting factor, for many people, these medicines represent the difference between being able to live or not being able to live. Uh, some of these people are dependent on this product on a weekly, sometimes a, a monthly basis. These are crucial medicines that people need. Uh, and it's not just to, for people who need them in order to live. It's also for people who need them to improve their quality of life. So people who suffer from primary and secondary immune deficiency it makes an enormous difference for those people going without that medicine means that it's more difficult for them to stand up. It means it's more difficult for them to fall asleep. Uh, it means in some cases that it's more difficult for these people to breathe. These are crucial medicines. We really do need them. We do. And we, we can't overlook that fact. It seems as though, Peter, the, the debate gets bogged down in kind of morals and ethics about whether it's right, whether it's appropriate to compensate people for this donation. Why can't it all just come from volunteer donors? And I guess you know, we can have that academic debate, but there's some very practical realities that we run into, as you just outlined. Yeah, we do. And actually, it would be interesting if we could have that debate. But remember, the, the bill, Bill 3, the Voluntary Blood Donations Act that was passed in Alberta, it didn't ban paid plasma. As you pointed out at the very beginning, Alberta continues to rely on paid plasma, as does the rest of Canada. What we do is we import it from the United States where people are paid for their plasma donations. The only question here is whether or not it's okay to also pay Canadians for their plasma or if we're just going to continue to rely on American paid plasma. Because no one has proposed banning the importation of paid plasma, and of course they haven't. Because there is no way for us to meet the needs that we have uh, with a totally voluntary system. 
Right. There, there's no country in the world, in fact, that has met its needs with a volunteer system. Yeah, that's right. There's no country in the world that has done that. I would be more open to the idea that a voluntary system, an unpaid system, could meet the need if you could point to just one example. But there is not one example in the world. And, of course, there's only seven countries that allow payment for blood plasma donations. Germany, Austria, uh, Hungary, the Czech Republic, the United States, and parts of Canada. Those are the only seven countries that allow payment. The rest uh, of the world bans payment, and we don't have a single country that is managing to meet their need on a purely voluntary basis. The closest that we come to, and sometimes people who are on the other side of this issue, they mention Italy, for example. Uh, Italy is about 80% self-sufficient, but in Italy, you get a paid day off work to donate blood or plasma. In Canada, that would count as payment. If we were to offer, if Canadian Blood Services was to offer a paid day off work, that would count as payment and would be contrary to the Voluntary Blood Donations Act. So we don't have uh, any country that is managing to meet the need without paying donors. And the United States provides over 60% of the entire world's plasma supply. We are, the whole world is dependent on the United States. It's worth pointing out, by the way, Rob, that uh, exports, of blood products from the United States represent 1.6% of their total exports by GDP, which is more than aluminum. It's more than steel. It's an enormous number. But it puts it in perspective, too, because as other countries are unable to meet their own domestic needs, the United States produces so much in terms of plasma product that it more than meets its own need. It's able to satisfy the need at home and exports a tremendous amount, as you just outlined abroad. So that that's quite a, a contrast, isn't it? Yeah, and it's hard to understand how they're able to not only meet but also exceed their need without understanding that they pay for donations. Clearly, payment is effective. It works. We've had the experiment of not paying people for their plasma donations, and we don't have enough. Uh, in Canada, we, you know, the most important of these products is immune globulin. Uh, and in Canada, we are only able to collect 17%. The remainder we import, the remainder of that medicine we import primarily from the United States. Now, the question of safety often comes up in this debate, which is an important question, obviously. We, we should be very concerned about the safety of, of the blood supply, the safety of the plasma supply. It, again, though, it speaks to, to the disconnect here, because if we're suggesting that uh, paid plasma is more dangerous, then we should immediately cut off imports from the United States, shouldn't we? Yeah, this is what makes that particular argument disingenuous as far as I'm concerned. So the people on the other side, and I'm talking about the Canadian Union of Public Employees, uh, Blood Watch, uh, the Canadian Health Coalition, and so on, they reference the, the Creever Inquiry and the tainted blood scandal in Canada. And they suggest, and they don't openly say it because, of course, they shouldn't openly say it because they know better, I hope. Uh, they suggest that paid plasma is less safe than unpaid plasma. But as you said, if that were true, then what are we doing importing paid plasma? And, of course, Canadian Blood Services and Health Canada, both of those organizations, have repeatedly said that paid plasma used to make these medicines is just as safe as unpaid plasma. It's been more than two decades. It's been 25 to 30 years now uh, since we've had uh, any kind of transmission of any virus from the medicines that are made in the United States. And if we're concerned about standards in the United States, well, it just seems then that, that it would be ideal to encourage more donation in Canada so we can apply our own standards uh, to, to testing this plasma, making sure that this plasma is safe. So uh, to me, that's, that's an argument in favor of paid donations, not against. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think it is an argument in favor of paying people here in Canada. I say here, I'm calling you from West Virginia, but I am Canadian. Yes. So by here, (laughs) I mean in Canada. It is an argument for paying for plasma donations uh, in Canada. We can have greater control. I mean, of course, uh, the United States, the paid plasma centers in the United States are covered not just by the FDA, but if you want to export to uh, countries like Canada, you also have to get separate regulatory approval from Health Canada. Uh, there's also the Plasma Protein Therapeutics Association, an umbrella organization that watches over all of the different paid plasma centers, all the different plasma companies. 
uh, and they too have uh, additional regulations over and above the ones mandated by the FDA and by Health Canada. Mm-hmm. These products are very safe. I, I mean, the only the only issue here is whether we're going to continue paying Americans for their plasma or if we're going to allow Canadians to be paid for it as well. I mean, I should point out, too, this isn't just about self-sufficiency. I know that's what all the discussions are about, but this is a global need. The need for plasma is around the world, right? People in lots of countries are in desperate need of these medicines. Canada is a rich country. We shouldn't just be collecting enough plasma to meet our own domestic needs. We should be an exporter of plasma, right? We should be busy contributing to the global supply rather than taking from it, as has been our custom for the last, you know, two, three decades. Now, what's interesting, too, and I know there was some concern in Canada about a a particular private clinic uh, that was setting up locations in various provinces and and whether they had an agreement in place with Health Canada or whether plasma collected might be going abroad. I I, I get that that's maybe a legitimate concern. If we're going to be paying Canadians for plasma, that that should go into meeting our domestic needs first. But it seems that we can address that in in other ways. Is is that something that, that is a concern, though? Uh, okay, so let's let's uh, talk about this a little bit. So the company is called Canadian Plasma Resources. Right. And back in 2012, they said that they had a plan to open three paid plasma centers in the province of Ontario. Uh, they would also build a fractionation plant. We're talking about a total of about 150 million to 200 million dollars uh, in an in an investment in Ontario. By 2014, the Ontario government had passed the Voluntary Blood Donations Act, kicking them out. Uh, They said they wanted to open in Alberta. As you know, as everybody in Alberta knows, uh, the Notley government passed Bill 3, making it illegal there. They managed to open in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and in Moncton, New Brunswick. And then they said they would also look at British Columbia, but British Columbia passed the Voluntary Blood Donations Act in 2018, making it impossible for them to open in British Columbia. Canadian Plasma Resources has offered all of the plasma that they have collected to Canadian Blood Services. Canadian Blood Services is the monopoly like distributor of plasma medicines in Canada. There's no other domestic market for Canadian Plasma Resources. Not only did they offer all of the plasma collected in Canada, but, and I can share this document with you <laughs> if you can post it online if you'd like to, they offered that plasma at a 20% discount yeah, to right. what Canadian Blood Services was paying for American uh, plasma. Canadian Blood Services decided against purchasing Canadian plasma. Now, I've asked Graham Schur, he's the CEO of Canadian Blood Services, I've asked him why they've made that decision. Yeah. Because it's true that at any moment they can change their mind. The worry that this plasma is being exported, one, I, you know, like I said before, there is a global need for this product. Uh, and while I do agree that maybe it's better to meet the domestic need before you go abroad, the people who are selling their plasma to Canadian Plasma Resources are not the same people that are giving plasma to Canadian Blood Services. All we've done is increased or helped just a tiny bit with respect to the global supply of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But Canadian Blood Services can decide at any moment to purchase that pl- that uh, that pl- plasma, right? So it's up to them. It's not up to the company. Yeah, the company has said, and the contract is still available for Canadian Blood Services to take up. Yeah, very interesting. Now, Peter, by the way, what, what's typical? Like, what does this clinic pay? What What's typical in the United States in terms of, of compensation? Uh, Canadian Plasma Resources pays more than United States paid plasma centers. Uh, Typical compensation ranges in the United States from $20 to $50 per donation. Uh, It takes about an hour and a half to two hours to donate plasma. Uh, In the United States, you can donate twice a week, uh, twice every seven days with at least 48 hours in between donations. Uh, In Canada, you can only donate once a week, but Canadian Plasma Resources offers between $30 to $50 per donation. Uh, And then on top of that, they have bonuses and other giveaways and so on. Uh, So they do pay a bit more per donation, but you can only donate once a week in Canada, whereas you can donate twice a week in the United States. All right. Very interesting. Much more at DonationEthics.com. As mentioned, this piece in the Globe and Mail today as well. Peter, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
Thanks for having me on, Rob. All right, take care. Peter Jaworski joining us, Assistant Teaching Professor of Ethics, Georgetown University, working on a holiday down there in West Virginia, co-founder of DonationEthics.com. As Health Canada has pointed out, paying people to donate plasma in Canada is not new, does not represent a change in policy or practice for Canada. A company in Winnipeg has been operating safely and paying donors for plasma for 30 years. The plasma products we import from the U.S. are largely from paid donors. Paying people to donate plasma has not weakened Canada's blood system or the volunteer donor base, and there is no evidence that it will. That system is completely voluntary and will remain so. In fact, evidence has shown that the U.S. and other countries with paid plasma donation sites have some of the highest voluntary blood donations in the world. The plasma collected from paid and unpaid donors is equally safe because every donor is treated the same. Through strict regulations, screening and testing methods, and techniques to eliminate viruses, Canada has not had a single case of hepatitis B, hepatitis C, or HIV transmitted by a plasma product in the last 25 years. The United States is, remains, the largest producer of plasma, with much of the world relying on its supply. About 70% of the immune globulins used in Canada are from the U.S., the majority of which are from paid plasma donors. So Canada has not, and frankly, Canada cannot ban plasma from paid donors because the vast majority of what we have at our disposal comes from paid donors in the United States. The more we can collect here, the more we can apply that to our own standards. But the only way really to get anywhere close to self-sufficiency is to do what the United States has done. There is no country on earth that has got to self-sufficiency for plasma products through a strictly volunteer system that does not exist. There's no way we are going to get from importing over 70% of plasma products from the United States to self-sufficiency on a volunteer system. It isn't going to happen. It's really weird and frustrating to me that, that something like this is happening anywhere in Canada in 2019. This is a story out of Manitoba, a province that has something called the Retail Businesses Holiday Closing Act that essentially mandates that retail stores shut their doors on holidays. But of course, for a lot of people, those holidays are, are days off where they can go out and do the sorts of shopping that needs to be done. Like, for example, go buy groceries. And maybe here in Alberta, we take this for granted. That on most holidays, maybe Christmas being the exception, but on most holidays, if you need to go pick up some groceries, you can certainly go and do so. The hours might be a little different. But if people want to shop, and businesses want to be open. Why is there a problem for government to solve? In Manitoba, grocery stores are not allowed to open on holidays. So we talked about this story a few months ago. A story in in Winnipeg, Food Fair, was fined $10,000 for being open on Good Friday. Despite the fact that clearly people wanted to shop on Good Friday, there were people in the store. And now they're in some hot water again because they opened their doors on Canada Day. A provincial inspector apparently came into the store on Canada Day, asked the manager to provide names, addresses, and phone numbers of all the employees that work there. Now, this is interesting, though, because uh, this just came in a few minutes ago. I don't know if our, our guest has heard this. Manitoba's premier is commenting on all of this, saying that his government is considering loosening that law. Brian Pallister says he agrees with the grocery store owner who has complained that there is a contradiction and allowing casinos and liquor stores to open while forcing grocers and others to close. It's the law. So we'll have to take a look at changing the law, right? And that's underway. That discussion is happening. I know there's discussion going on right now at various levels in the government and departmentally about this issue. In my view, this would be a decision best made by municipalities in their areas of jurisdiction. All right, so some comments there from Manitoba's Premier. Well, let's bring into the conversation uh, Ramsey Ziad. He is manager of Food Fair in Winnipeg. Ramsey, thanks for making some time for us here. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. All right, well, what do you make of that? The, the Premier of Manitoba saying that uh, they, they kind of agree with your position here and they're, they're looking maybe at changing this law. Sure, you know what? Um, we've been told that already, that uh, they're looking at changing the law, but it is, they said that... Uh, 
it might take a little while because there's an election coming up. Right. Uh, we were also told that nothing would come of it, but uh, we're still being uh, fined and we're still being taken to court. So I don't know what that all means. Yeah, exactly. So in the meantime, yeah. you got to deal with this. So um, well, that's exactly it. The the ten thousand dollar fine. Now that that occurred in the aftermath of Good Friday, right? Exactly. That a couple of weeks after Good Friday, uh, two uniformed police officers showed up in our store, and uh, they were uh, they, they you could tell they didn't want to be there, and they were said uh, you know they they were making us issue this uh, this fine, and we looked at it and said ten thousand dollars. We said, are you serious? He said, we're not the ones issuing this ticket. Yeah. The province. So they, we said, okay, we know it's not you. Thank you very much for your time. And they left. Um, a couple of weeks after that, after, uh, you know, a lot of people complained and we complained and there's a lot of support behind it. Um, our, uh, our government said that, uh, it wasn't supposed to be a fine. It's actually supposed to be a summons to appear in front of a magistrate. So they, they said they made a mistake. And so what happened then? Did you end up going to court? Uh, no, court is still pending. It's, uh, I believe it's in September that uh, we have to go. So, the, yeah, so this is still this is still hanging over. It, you oh, yeah, it, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, if everybody disagrees with it. If everybody thinks that this lawsuit be changed, uh, you know, from citizens to, to, to store owners to, to politicians, but yet we're still getting on these fines and we still have to go to court. Yeah, it makes no sense. So no, uh, Can- Canada Day was, of course, three days ago, and and I guess yes, it was it, it was it was kind of a a deliberate decision then that that you needed to take a stand here, and, and sure. you, had, you were you guys were open on Canada Day. We were. Um, we normally close on Canada Day, but uh, before we decided to open or close, we kind of checked out to see who was open and who was closed. Um, we have two uh, large casinos in Winnipeg that w- were advertising on their website that they were open from uh, 10 a.m. on June 28th till 3 a.m. on July 2nd. So, I mean, 24 hours for the five days. Yeah. Um, the Manitoba Liquor Commission, which would be our liquor marts, they're owned by the government also in, in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And they were also open from 10 till 6 um, and are all of the weed dispensaries, because weed is legal now, or marijuana is legal now, all the marijuana dispensaries were all open also until 6. So we figured, you know, if, if all of them can open, you can go and gamble and you can, you can go and buy alcohol and you can get high. Mm-hmm. Why can't you buy groceries? So we opened up. I know it's it's crazy. So yeah. if someone wants to go get a bite to eat at a restaurant, as you say, someone wants to go gamble, wants to go buy some beer, wants to go buy some marijuana, right? They're they're able yeah, to do no problem some, at all. No problem at all. Yeah. There's a problem then when it comes to buying groceries on a holiday. And sure, of course. And we know of six or seven other grocery stores in Winnipeg that opened up, and not one of them got a ticket. Not one of them got a visit from the labor board or anything. Oh, is that it right? was just us. So I don't know if we're being picked on for some reason or or what's going on. Well, it certainly sounds like it. So they, they I paid, think so. Yeah, they paid you guys a visit on on uh, Monday, didn't they? They they did. Yeah, they did. They uh, they came in and it was the same inspector from uh, Good Friday, and uh, he came in and he asked for all the employees' working names, addresses, and phone numbers, and uh, we told them, you know, why? Uh, that's confidential information. He says, well, if you don't comply, uh, you're liable to get a $1,000 per employee fine on top of the opening fine. Wow. So we just said, you know what? It's confidential and we're not going to give it to you. So if you need to give us a fine, go ahead. If you're not going to give us a fine, then you need to leave the store if you're not buying anything. You know, the funny thing is, look, nobody's being forced to go grocery shopping on these well, holidays, that's right? Exactly but it. but yeah. obviously... People do want to. It's it's a day yeah. off. It's a chance maybe to get some of those chores done. So I'm I'm guessing sure. then that on Canada Day, on Good Friday, you, you had people in your store, didn't you? We had lots of people in the store, actually. We were really busy. Um, we actually, on uh, in one of our stores on Canada Day, we have the actor Sean Penn in Winnipeg. He's directing a movie. He actually came shopping on Canada Day. Really? Wow. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. No kidding. Yeah. Um, on, uh, on another note, also all the employees that work on, on the, on the holidays, 
they're all volunteer. Like we, nobody's forced to work. Everybody's paid time and a half or double time or whatever it is. So nobody's forced to work. If they want to work, they can. So usually all the students volunteer to work because they, sure. they make some extra money. Yeah. Yeah, and that, it's important to point that out, too, right? So nobody's yeah. being forced to work. You're paying nobody's time being and a half. To work at all. And, yeah. and that, that seems reasonable, right? I mean, it is Definitely. a statutory holiday, and, and we exactly. can treat it as such. So uh, this is really strange. But as you say, Ramsey, this this has received a lot of attention across the country. You guys are getting a lot of support. So are, are you going to... Uh, right? I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you, you guys aren't, aren't backing down on this, are you? No, we're, we're, we're not backing down at all. Uh, we're, we're taking this as far as it needs to be... As far as it needs to be... Uh, needs to go. Uh, we are opening up the next holiday. I think it's the civic holiday. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, if they need to come in and give us another fine, I guess they should probably do that before the holiday so that we don't waste taxpayers' money and send in the inspector on, on a holiday. So he's paying full time. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy, Ramsey. I hope you guys prevail here. I mean, it's really unfortunate that you're being put through all of this, just trying to serve your customers, really, is what you're doing here. Right. Uh, and, and look, if folks are, are heading to Winnipeg, if you're passing through, if you're visiting family, uh, stop by Food Fair, give them some support. Ramsey, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right, take care. There you go, Ramsey Z. He's the manager of uh, Food Fair in Winnipeg. Uh, him and his brother are our co-managers. And th- this is crazy to me. Why, why are you punishing business people? Why are you punishing entrepreneurs? Why are you punishing people who are fulfilling an obvious need? People think, look, okay, I've got a day off. It's not for the government to dictate how you mark any given holiday. It's not for the government to say, no, it's Good Friday. This is what you have to be doing. Or it's Canada Day. This is what you have to be doing. No, it's none of your business what I do with my holiday. If I've got a day off work, maybe I'm just going to drink all day. Maybe I'm going to sleep all day. Maybe I'm going to mow the lawn. Maybe I'm going to get some groceries. Maybe I'm going to do something else. It's none of your damn business. Now, if you're a business owner and you want to close on Canada Day or the Civic Holiday or Good Friday or just any random day, you should be free to do so. You shouldn't be forced to stay open, nor should you ever be forced to close. So the idea that in this country, in 2019, the government is forcing businesses to close their doors is insanity to me. Now, fortunately, this is not in Alberta. And I think Albertans would be shocked If anything like this happened, I think we've kind of been a little bit ahead of the curve on some of these issues, at least in in more recent years. But it is crazy to me that this would exist. And not only does it exist, just the, the weird and blatant double standard. If the argument in Manitoba is that it's a holiday, people should be out doing holiday stuff. Now, why are restaurants open? Why are casinos open? Why are liquor stores open? Why are cannabis stores open? So, sure, if you want to go to a restaurant on Canada Day, yeah, absolutely. If you want to get groceries on Canada Day, well, you should be free to do that. Our department is incredibly um, cognizant of of the desire to to make sure these bears are healthy and happy in the long term. And when something like this happens, it's, it's sad for all of us. All right, that's a spokesperson for Alberta Environment and Parks uh, lamenting what happened here. Uh, what happened to this 16-month-old black bear. As a cub was orphaned, one of two, in fact, that was rehabilitated at the Cochrane Ecological Institute. Now, you might recall, and there, there was some controversy as to whether the Alberta government was even going to allow the institute to rehabilitate these, these animals. Now, fortunately, common sense prevailed there. So they were rehabilitated uh, over the winter, and a few weeks ago were released back into the wild. And now one of them, the female... Uh, has stayed fairly close uh, to where she was released and, and is apparently doing well. Uh, the 16-month-old uh, male bear cub, Charlie, as he was called, uh, wandered quite far. In fact, about 120 kilometers north of where he was released. Uh, got too close to some children on some private land and was shot by landowner. So as you heard in that clip, it was an unfortunate outcome as the uh, Alberta government sees it. Uh, No charges are going to be laid. But who's to blame here? What's interesting is the Cochrane Ecological Institute did rehabilitate these animals, but was not involved in the release 
of these animals. Well, joining us to talk about what happened here and maybe lessons we can learn from all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Cleo Smeaton, president of the Cochrane Ecological Institute. Cleo, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hi, Cleo. Thanks for making some time for us here. Obviously, this, this is very unfortunate. So what's your understanding of what happened here? Well, it's an interesting thing. I mean, we have been rearing and releasing orphaned black bears back into the wild for 15 years. There was a sort of a gap when the uh, government forbade every wildlife rehab center in Alberta from rescuing and rearing uh, orphaned black bears and bighorn sheep and quite a lot of iconic species. And it was due to public pressure, I think, that they changed their minds about uh, and allowed the rescue of orphaned black bears again. Mm -hmm. But in the 15 years that we were doing it legally and with the support and advice of Fish and Wildlife Branch, um, we did it from start to finish. We received the orphans. We checked out the release sites and evaluated them. And then we released the cubs. And sometimes uh, Fish and Wildlife would come with us, and sometimes they didn't need to. For instance, when we released up, on, up in Cold Lake with the blessing of D&D. And all that time... We never lost a bear, and none of our bears came into conflict uh, with humans. And uh, in 2010, uh, the question was asked by the press of, a, well, AESRD as they were then, and they said there was no record of human-wildlife conflict as a result of wildlife rehab. And then on the, in October 2018, uh, we asked the same question and got the same response. So um, I think there are two things. There's the way you raise them, which we raise them in a four-acre enclosure with big trees, and so often you don't even see them. Uh, they get their food provided at different times of day, so they can't expect to be fed, say, at 4 o'clock, you know. Right. And, uh, um, and they are unfamiliar with people. Even when you... Uh, when, like, to overwinter them, we had to bring a hibernating box in. It's an insulated box. And uh, they, they fill it with earth and stuff, and then they sleep in it. And so we had to tow that in with a tractor, and they went right up trees and stayed up there and didn't come down for, you know, quite a while mm -hmm. because they had a novel thing in their uh, enclosure. And um, because... Uh, AESRD and AEP have no money set aside so they themselves can undertake wildlife rehab or build facilities to enable uh, wildlife rehab to be undertaken. Nobody has any real experience um, about it right. and what to do with it and with rearing bears. And so it is possible to misread um, behaviors. And what actually happened, uh, I know that the uh, government has been saying that the bear behaved in a habituated fashion to one of their people. Mm -hmm. But what actually happened is that the after, after two hours of getting the traps in um, and organizing everything, there were trucks and stuff outside the enclosure. And they... Um, then the trucks left, and there was just one truck remaining uh, a ways away, and one guy standing outside the fence, looking through the fence where the traps were. And the male bear came down at, out of the tree he was in. He walked over to the trap. He looked at the trap, walked around the trap, and he walked away from the trap. But in walking over to the trap, he was walking in the direction of this AEP guy, and he read that as habituated behavior, not really as the behavior of an animal who was seeing an unusual thing in his familiar enclosure. Um, nobody can prove one way or another, which is right, mm -hmm. but logic seems and experience says that that's what was happening. It was not a threat.
in any way, shape, or form. Um, I'm concerned because the AEP repeatedly said to us and wrote to us that they would provide us with all the information that happened with Charlie. They forbade us to have any input in release site selection. And when you raise two cubs together, and they're together for uh, almost nine to ten months, the logical thing is to release them together, and the logical thing is to release them in an area where they don't encounter people. Southwestern Alberta's got more people than Grand Cache, and Grand Cache also has the Wilmore Wilderness Park, which is huge. And so it it would have made sense to put both the cubs in the same uh, transport and drive them up and release them both there instead of taking one to uh, Grand Cache and one to uh, the Pincher Creek area. Um, mm-hmm. And it would have saved people money. Uh, you know, it's way less expensive, not much, nearly so much gas. But they were determined to release one in Pincher Creek where that was where he was orphaned originally and to release the other, Masqua, up in the Grand Cache area, which was where she was orphaned. And it was obviously the Grand Cache area was the best release site. Right. So that would have been your advice had you been involved in the process. Why why did they exclude you from this process, though? I don't know. I mean, it's the first time they've ever, Alberta Environment Parks, have ever released uh, um, uh, rescued, reared, uh, orphaned, black bear cup. So I guess they wanted to have it go themselves and not bother with us, really. Do you get the sense that by implying that the bear had been habituated, rather, that they are trying to suggest that, that your organization is to blame and that they're not to blame? Oh, I think that's, that's a natural behavior of anyone, mm-hmm. <laughs> is to say, oh, it wasn't us, it was somebody else who did it, you know. But in actual fact, if you look at the record our record is 15 years of successful release with no contact between the animals we released and humans. Right. And that is uh, Department of the Environment information. It's not just me saying it, mm-hmm. you know. So on, purely on the record, you'd, it looks like our release site choices were better than the release site chosen for Charlie by AEP. I mean, I would think we would want uh, experts to be directly involved in this. So I, I, I do struggle to understand why Alberta Environment Parks approached this in the way that they did. Are, are you worried that the next time we, we may end up making the same mistakes? Well, it's worrisome in that they are going to evaluate. See, they said to us uh, that they were going to come out prior to catching up the bear cubs, and they were going to bring experts to evaluate the, the fitness of the cubs for uh, reintroduction and whether or not they were habituated they didn't do that they didn't bring anyone and uh, they just came out brought the traps stuck them in the enclosure the bears went in overnight and they took the traps away and re- put the collars on the bears in the warehouse in hot cochran i haven't a clue where that is and uh, um, transported them to either ends of the province so it, it is an interesting behavior, and it's an expensive waste of money. You know, if you don't want to be too... Obviously, we take in injured orphan wild animals because that is what we believe is important. And we would like success. And it's important even more in the 21st century because we're looking at a huge loss of biodiversity to which Alberta is not immune. Right. But we have uh, our government has a policy of killing uh, iconic uh, indigenous species like grizzly bears and bighorn sheep. You know, if they're orphaned, they get killed by conservation officers. And in fact, last year, up in the Grand Cache area, a grizzly bear cub was killed by the conservation officer rather than being rescued. And those are endangered species, listed species in Alberta. So we need to think again. We need to get a 21st century approach to wildlife management and that means uh, as far as i can see the government has three problems they don't know and they 
personally in their hearts don't believe that wildlife rehab is a benefit, a conservation benefit to um, the biodiversity of Alberta. That's one thing. Then they say they don't know if rearing and releasing in orphaned wildlife uh, works. And then they also say that the people of Alberta don't want wildlife reared and released where they live or anywhere. Now, we have given them this proposal and they'll probably pay no attention to it, but we thought, okay, we'll address that at our own cost. We will undertake a survey of the coast, uh, of the coast edge of the Rocky Mountains, you know, from the south up until Edmonton sort of area, mm-hmm. and find out what the stakeholders, that is the people who live on the land, feel about the return of um, orphan wildlife. Do they, I can see, like in Sundry, nobody would want any bears to re- release anywhere near there because they feel they have plenty of them. Right. But there aren't actually plenty of bears everywhere. And there are places where the bears used to be that they no longer are. And that people might think that's a good place to let them go. But we have to ask the people on the ground what they really feel. And then we'll get a picture of where release sites would be good to, would be good. And then you have to go out and check and see if there's, they're suitable, their habitat is suitable. And then you could safely let an animal go there. So that's one thing we want to do. We're trying to raise money to do that survey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we want to evaluate post-release methodology and release. Um, we found when we were doing the Fox. See, the thing is that we are internationally known for our ability to reintroduce or release wildlife successfully because of us that there are swift fox in Alberta and Saskatchewan after they were extinct here. And because of that success, um, the government of Norway sent a deputation of civil servants out to learn what we did so they could apply it in Norway. And last November, the uh, government of South Korea sent their reintroduction technology uh, group out to learn what we do so they could apply to their reintroduction. So we know what we're doing. But at the moment, what we do is not valued by our government. It's an unfortunate thing. Yeah, unfortunate indeed. Well, uh, more at ceinst.org, uh, the uh, Concord Ecological Institute. Clear. Hopefully some, some good can come of all of this, but uh, we'll, we'll talk again in the future and see if anything uh, has indeed changed. <laughs> Cleo, thanks so much for this. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Uh, that is Cleo Smeaton with the Concord Ecological Institute. And as she says, I mean, their, their track record speaks for itself. Why, why we're disregarding this kind of expertise is, is a mystery to me. Our number here, 403-974-8255-974-TALK. We are back with more right after this. Well, what would the 4th of July be without a whole lot of hot dogs being consumed? 71, to be exact, uh, for perhaps the biggest star in competitive eating, Joey Chestnut, his 12th hot dog eating contest title, just short of his record, which was 74 in 10 minutes. But 71 was more than enough to crush the competition at the Nathan's famous July 4th hot dog eating contest, which, by the way, we had on the television in the office this morning. I'll call a research for this segment. It is an interesting world, competitive eating. I don't know if you call it a sport or what exactly you call it, but I do find these competitors fascinating. I remember a few years ago, I had an opportunity to interview Molly Shiler, who's just a tiny little thing, 120-pound mom of four, who has set all kinds of records. Like, for example, 20 minutes, Molly devoured three 72-ounce steaks. Isn't that insane? (laughs) I don't think I could eat a single 72-ounce steak, maybe in 10 days. 
Um, so it is a remarkable talent. It is not one that I think everybody appreciates. Uh, for everyone who's fascinated by the hot dog eating contest, you probably find someone who's just completely um, <laughs> just sickened by the whole thing. But it is a big deal. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on this uh, interesting world of competition, Richard Shade joins us. He is with Major League Eating, MajorLeagueEating.com on Twitter, at Eating Contest. Richard, great to, to have you with us here. Thanks for making some time for us. Oh, thanks, you. thanks for having us. Thanks for expressing the interest in the fastest growing sport in the world. Well, and Joey put on quite a show today. I mean, look, in terms of, like, people know him, right? This guy is a celebrity. So, I mean, it, it speaks to how prominent this is, isn't it? He he is a celebrity. You could be in Las Vegas or New York City or any real town, and uh, yeah, he gets shout outs. You know, walking down the street, uh, he he is you know the finest competitive eater of all time. Uh, and you know, over the past twenty years, while while eating contests have been occurring, I think since the dawn of man, uh, the last couple decades is when it's really grown to prominence. And uh, obviously, the Fourth of July here in America, the uh, the biggest day of our year with the with the Nathan's famous hot dog eating championship and uh, and he's won it now 12 times so uh, it's a dominance that uh, even eclipses the great Bill Russell in basketball <laughs> I suppose uh, so what makes someone want to do this right what, what is the appeal then not just to those who watch it but those who, who want to compete in this well I mean I think that some people I think a lot of people watch it and uh, and and just are, are impressed by the the ability, and then I think some people watching are like, "Hey, I actually might have that ability." Uh, I certainly don't. You know, I, I called the contest today on ESPN, and I, I, uh, I'm president of Major League Eating, so I've seen a lot of it, and I uh, put helped put the league together with my brother, and, and <clears throat> I don't have that skill. I mean, I can hardly eat a a wrap sandwich uh, or whatever a wrap at my desk quickly. So, but I think some people watch it and, and they, they say, "Hey, I'm going to go to one of these Major League Eating events and see if I can do it." And sometimes they can, and sometimes they can't, and then if they can. <laughs> Uh, you know, they, 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 they stick with it and they, and, you know, the lucky ones, you know, climb the ladder. I think there's a stereotype maybe or an image that people have in their heads that someone who's capable of eating 71 hot dogs, it's, you know, it must be enormous, but it's strange. You look at uh, the people competing on that stage today, it certainly doesn't meet that, that stereotype, does it? Yeah. You know, that's an interesting point. So a shift took place, you know, uh, I would say like in 2004 or five, you know, we used to have these sort of big buffet buster kind of guys, right. uh, you know, you'd think these sort of big truck driver kind of dudes who can eat a lot of food, um, you know, big appetite people with big bellies to match. Um, that actually sort of all shifted. We started getting more and more traditional athletes. And a lot of the guys uh, and gals you saw on the stages today were, you know, they're traditional athletes. They run marathons. They do all, all variety of sports. Um, and and they all, a lot of them would say that if you have a big belly, actually, it, it inhibits uh, your your expansion. So they don't they don't actually want to have fat. Um, that they and they want to be sort of cardio fit and stuff. So it's it's not something that we uh, that we scripted, but it certainly has evolved that way. It has, yeah. And it's not just hot dogs. I mean, the hot dog eating contest probably gets the most attention because it's come, become such yeah. a tradition on July 4th. But um, wh- what are some of the other competitions that are out there? Uh, there's so many. We do buffalo wings in Buffalo. We do uh, poutine in uh, Toronto. We do uh, we do oysters in New Orleans. I mean, we're, Major League is very lucky to work with a lot of sort of venerable brands and, and do sort of foods that are either indigenous to an area or someplace they might be doing a festival to celebrate you know, the harvest and things like that, which I actually, and I don't really have the, the full history in my head, but you can think back 100, 200 years ago at harvest time is when you were, you were blessed to have all this food, and so people would, you know, do, do, do various games with it. And, uh, you know, Nathan's famous to their credit, gave 100,000 hot dogs to the food bank for New York City, as yeah. they have for, I think, 14 years now. So uh, we're lucky to be able to do this, obviously, uh, and certainly a big celebration. And, you know, out in the 4th of July in Coney Island, there's a lot of ballyhoo and pageantry that goes along with it. <laughs> No kidding. Well, what about the risks? I mean, I don't know. I mean, one would obviously be when you're eating that fast, the risk of choking, those kinds of things. I mean, is, is there some inherent danger Absolutely. in doing this? You know, I, I, I would assume, I think you'd have to be foolish to uh, to do this in your backyard. This is, uh, it would be like trying to have a car race around the neighborhood. We, yeah. we would not suggest that. And we uh, we always, Major League Eating, when we founded it in 98, uh, we always uh, have paramedics and EMTs at our events. We've been very fortunate not to have to turn to them. But, um, you have to have those proper safety controls uh, in place. And uh, we even do it. If, if I were to come in the studio with you and do a, a quick poutine eating championship or a donut uh, donut like demo for a minute, we would have EMTs on hand. So I, I would tell people not to do it at home. And, and what you see on TV today, these are these are the best of the best. You know, so um, <clears throat> obviously it's, yeah. 
it's it's not it's not for the uh, it's not for it's not an amateur sport. No, it's not. Yeah, and today is donut day in our office. I, I I'm really good at getting right to the donuts quicker than anybody. But um, <laughs> now usually one is about. You're the fast, <laughs> yeah, you're the, you're the fastest draw in the office. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, what do you say to people though who who look at competitive eating and say, you know, look in society today we're concerned about people's eating habits that this promotes gluttony or this promotes unhealthy eating. What, what do you say to that? I mean, I think it's a, that's a little bit of a parochial attitude. I think that you have to be able to loosen up and, and, and appreciate the skill of these eaters, appreciate the, the joy and the fun that we have and some of the good that we do. Um, but obviously, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not a fan of gluttony. I'm not a fan of waste. Uh, and, and the league certainly doesn't promote that. Um, but, I, but I'm also not a fan of parochial attitudes. So you have to do a traditional you know, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, tennis. Is, those aren't the only sports in the world. And so I'm pleased that we've been able to see people like Joey Chestnut and Mickey Sudo uh, identify something they're great at and, and, and reach, the t- reach the heights that they have. Yeah, it's certainly competitive. Uh, it's an activity. Would, would we call it a sport? Do you call it a sport? Absolutely, it's a sport. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a physical activity governed by a set of rules. And, and uh, I mean, you've seen it, so it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely a sport. There's, there's, there's rivalries. There's, uh, there's challengers. There's, they, these guys watch their tapes. They, uh, they do everything that any other athlete would do. And I actually think this is as inherent to man uh, as running and jumping, both things that are in, that are in the Olympics. Well, people can read more, MajorLeagueEating.com. Richard, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate the conversation. Uh, I really appreciate We appreciate the interest. Thanks for watching. Have a great day. All right, you too. There you go. Richard Shea uh, with Major League Eating. <laughs> That's the thing. It is It is surreal to, wa- to watch this, I got to admit. I think there are a lot of people just repulsed by it. Like, holy crap, why is this on my television? Get it off, get it on. Uh, just the way, <laughs> you know, there's the way that you or I would eat a hot dog. You show up at a barbecue, oh, hey, hot dogs are over there. You get a hot dog, you know, put the hot dog in the bun, put the ketchup and mustard on, and eat it. That's obviously not how it goes at the hot dog eating contest. <laughs> it is, it is uh, a sight to behold. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.